Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Kevin, I figure right now you are going to so many events these days that you've probably just pulled over to the side of the road to have a little nap in your car. Why go home? Because you got to go to so many. Did we catch you at home, Kevin? I am. Yeah, I got home from Grand Prairie, from the Provincials. And uh, you're right. It was basically, uh, yeah, driving till whatever, one thirty-two in the morning. So you, you've got it bang on. And Warren, maybe you forget when we started this whole podcast that Kevin and I both said, we don't like early mornings, and right now it is five minutes after seven in the morning when we do this. What are you doing to us, Hanson? What are you doing? Huh? Just remember, Jim, it's an hour earlier where I am. I know. I know it is. <laughs> uh, you'd probably do it if you're in Hawaii, and it'd be two in the morning. Anyway, there is a bunch of confusion going on this week, so Kevin and Warren, you got to straighten us out on a bunch of stuff coming up right now on Inside Curling. Last Rock. Eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. The line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right here, Last guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay. Uh, like I said, boys, there's a bunch of confusion. A few provinces held playoffs this past weekend for the Scotties and the Briar. BC and Alberta did Briars and Scotties, while Saskatchewan just did the women's. Meanwhile, a number of other provinces and territories canceled playoffs for the Scotties because of COVID and actually appointed teams that will represent them at the Scotties. Uh, and will the Scotties actually be held at all? Uh, it's supposed to be in Thunder Bay. Curling Canada uh, still hasn't announced the mixed doubles team. What's the holdup here? Uh, Hot Rock Topics. Seems like a lot of confusion this past week with regard to the provincial and territorial playoffs. And some people have been asking, what role Curling Canada plays in all of this? We will look at the history of where does Curling Canada come in and the provinces and territories go out with regard to this decision. Should it be the provinces? Should it be Curling Canada? Uh, Also, mailbag. Uh, We've got a very interesting one regarding timing. As in click, click, stopwatches, timing for each end or the whole uh, game itself. And in the house, one of my favorites, Mark Kennedy. I can't wait to talk to him. Uh, Warren, you got a story from 1972, the Silver Broom. Someone booted a rock recently uh, and you're going to uh, deal with the kicked stationary stone. Emails, love to get them. You can email us, insidecurling at gmail.com. We use a lot of them, the short ones we use. Okay, don't make them too long. Okay, what's happening around the curling world? Brought to you by Sports Interaction. 
providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker, and you got to be 19 years old to play. Uh, the playoffs for the Brody, uh, Brodies. <laughs> Hang on. Sip of coffee, everyone. Take a time out. Hang on. There we go. It's not the Brodies. The playoffs for the Briar and the Scotties were held this past weekend in BC and Alberta and in Saskatchewan. The Scotties reps was declared. Kevin, give us an update on what happened there. But first, let's talk about Mary Ann Arsenault. She wins uh, more Canadian championships and other things to mention in uh, Nova Scotia with Colleen Jones. We want to see what's going on there. Uh, Marianne moves to BC and at the age of 53 represents BC at the Canadian Seniors Championship in December and finishes second and now skips uh, Kelly Scott's old team to the BC women's title and her 15th appearance. Wow. Uh, So Kev, give us an update there on uh, playoffs. Well, let's start there then, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks. Uh, let's start the BC Scotties. Um, Mariana Arsenal, what a story. 53 years old and uh, plays Sarah Wark in, in the semifinal and tied coming home, but uh, wins a 6-4. to four. That was in the semis. And then going into the final, uh, Kayla McMillan actually went through. Um, she got the bye into the final. Marianne had to come through the semi. Marianne was one up going home without, so a really good game. 7-6 going home. Marianne steals to win the BC Scotty, so congratulations to Marianne. Gina Schrader, as we said, it was, it's Kelly Scott's old team, Sasha Carter, Renee Simons. Amazing job, amazing job. Congratulations. Um, 53 years old, 15th Scotties, so I'll bet they're going to have a lot of fun uh, getting involved in that. BC also, though, Jimmy, had the BC men's. And uh, in the semis, of course, a name that everybody knows, Jimmy Cotter, played against Jeff Richard. Now, actually, Jeff, it's under his name, but actually Brent Pierce was the one throwing the last rocks. Uh, Jeff was one up going home with Hammer, ended up winning 7-5. In the final, uh, Jeff Richard actually played uh, Paul Cheka and... uh, it was an extra end game, great game, and actually Piercy, Brad, uh, Brent Pierce, he had to draw eight foot to win uh, BC. So congratulations to Brent and and Jeff, of course, Jared Kilamaya and uh, Nicholas Meister. Let's go over to Saskatchewan, talk about the Scotties, the Viterra Scotties being played there. In the semi, Penny Barker playing Amber Hall, and of course a champion there. And really just a tight game, no deuces, 4-3 to three for Penny Barker. She stole a big point in the fourth, and that was the difference in that one. And then in the final, Chelsea Carey um, ends up playing a Penny in the final. Chelsea got the bye into the final. And uh, there it's Penny Barker winning 7-5. to five. She stole points in the fourth and the fifth to take control of that one in the middle. So a huge win for Penny Barker, Christine Gamble, Jenna Eng, and Danielle Zaczynski. And then in Alberta, that's the coverage I was doing on the weekend, on the women's side. It was really a big three in Alberta. There was Casey Scheidegger, Kelsey Rock, and Laura Walker. And Casey and Kelsey played each other in the semi. And that was actually a bit of a, a bit of a blow to tell you what, Carrie Ann uh, McTaggart had a real tough game for Scheidegger, but Kelsey Rock had a tougher game <laughs> for Team Rock. Really couldn't make much of anything and ended up ending in the ninth end. In the final, Casey played Laura Walker, and that was just a great game. Tied up coming home. Nadine Scotland, uh, the lead for Team Walker, made two absolute perfect ticks. And then Laura only had to draw the eight foot in the end. So congratulations to Laura. Kate Cameron, who was MVP for sure of that event, 
played great. Taylor McDonald and Nadine Scotland. And on the men's side, Jeremy Hardy, young team out of Calgary, played Ted Appleman. Appleman wins 7-6 in the semi. And then Kevin Cooey hadn't played a 10-end game, Jimmy. He played to six ends in the first game he played, nine ends in the second game, six ends in the third game, six ends in the fourth game, and it was 8-4. to Cooey gets two to start the game. This is kind of the stuff Warren likes. Two gives up one. Gets two, gives up one. Gets two, gives up one. And it was an eight to four final. They were bang on. They were just way too tough for the field in Grand Prairie. So Kevin, Johnny Moe, BJ Newfeld, and uh, Benny Heaps, congratulations, you guys. So that's that's the scoop um, around the curling world today. Warren, number of other provinces and territories uh, had their playoffs, uh, but uh, some were canceled because of covid uh, and a number of teams were appointed to represent those regions at the Scotties. Uh, how is all this going to work, Warren? And, and, and bring us up to date about who got appointed. Well, we'll do a rundown on how the Scotties is looking at the moment as far as all the teams that are playing in it and how they got there. I guess it probably still has to be a question mark whether or not this event in Thunder Bay is going to take place on the date scheduled. They're moving ahead, but uh, I'm hearing from a couple of sources that the province of Ontario hasn't green-lighted this thing yet either. And uh, if anybody knows that for sure, let us know, because we don't, but we're hearing they haven't. But here's the way things sit with regard to played in and appointed. So Team Canada, of course, is Kerry Einerson. We know Kevin just talked about BC and Marianne Arsenault and Alberta Laura Walker, Penny Barker in Saskatchewan, all played in. Manitoba, Mackenzie Zacharias played in. Ontario, now here's the interesting one. This wasn't played in, cancelled because of covid but they made an interesting announcement last week. Um, one has to wonder what the thought process is, but they said Rachel Holman is going to be the team, unless Rachel Holman could be appointed for the Olympics with John Morris. And if that happens, then the team that's breathing right on Holman's heels with regard to CTRS points is Holly Duncan. That team will go. Doesn't seem right to many people that, in fact, if Holman doesn't go herself, the team still uh, would be going. But uh, that is... What we're hearing at the moment is what is the plan, and we'll talk about the Holman situation a little farther down the line here. Northern Ontario, an appointed team, Krista McCarville, which is a familiar name to everyone. In Quebec, Laurie St. George's, again appointed, but a, a familiar name, as is New Brunswick. Andrea Crawford, appointed. PEI, another familiar name, Susan Britt, appointed. Nova Scotia played in, Christina Black, young team. Newfoundland, Labrador, Hill, Sarah Hill is an appointed team. Northwest Territories. Appointed, Kerry Galusha, none of it. Bridget McPhail is the team. We understand that that was the only team entered for their playoffs. In UConn, Haley Burney is an appointed team. So if we take a look over the whole list of things, six teams were played in and the rest were appointed. But we still have something else has to happen, and that's the wild card situation. A lot of confusion with this at the moment as well with regard to how are the points being counted, etc., etc. Many people think that Kerry is going to be played against Fleury. Fleury's in for sure, but the question is the second place team uh, is Kerry, I guess, at the moment. But the confusion between Holman, Duncan, and this whole points thing has many people saying they should be going with the 18 teams as they did last year because of everything that's taken place. But I don't think that is possible at this time because things are too committed. So it's going to be uh, a roller coaster here, I think, the next couple of weeks. 
Kevin and I have been talking. I think almost uh, they should look at moving both these events, the Briar and Scotties, maybe later in the year. Maybe set up something that they, they run those events the end of April, early May, World Championships following, because I think it's just going to be too difficult, not only to get players into these sites without somebody getting COVID, but it's going to be the people required to run the events. It's going to be really, really difficult. Warren, will will Rachel Holman have any sort of choice in this herself, or is she at the mercy of Curling Canada or, or the province to say, you've got to do this and you can't do that? Well, it's a combination of the province and, uh, I guess, Curling Canada. I mean, Curling Canada points the team going to represent Canada at mixed doubles, but the province of Ontario is the one that points the team, in this case, going to the Scotties. So... I don't know where this all will fall or what's going to happen. There's a lot of uh, a lot of discussion going on behind the scenes, but nobody's saying much. If she had the choice, Kev, is she going as a four-man team or does she want to do the mixed doubles? You're you're in the Olympics. It doesn't matter. You 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 know you you crawl on your knees to go to the Olympics, and if it's mixed doubles, four person, it doesn't matter. Just get to the Olympics and have a chance to get on that podium. So that that's a, that that trumps everything. Uh, speaking of the mixed doubles, I. I'm missing my own segue, Warren. I was going to go on. Uh, speaking of the mixed doubles uh, for the Olympics, no, let's not let's not name that team yet. Okay, let's wait till the last minute, uh, Warren. What's Curling Canada doing here? We should have had a team appointed, in my mind. What about your mind? This is a real mystery. Why they haven't named this team? But uh, I'm quite sure they know. The team knows, but. Uh, the general public doesn't know yet who the team is, but there's a, a lot of rumbling going around in various sectors here that says it's it's John Morris and, and Rachel Holman. And I would have to think that that uh, rather strange announcement last week by Ontario Curling with regard to the women's team going to the Scotties, um, that they probably knew something when they made that announcement, because otherwise it seems very strange. So it kind of looks like it's going to be Holman and Morris from where I'm sitting. But uh, again, we have no official word in that. That is just uh, speculation that a few people are making. Uh, do you agree with that one, Kevin? Well, yeah, with uh, John Morris, of course, they just won um, Alberta. And uh, so it would make sense to me, well, some some sense, <laughs> that uh, they might have John getting tested sometime early to the middle of this week, uh, making sure that he uh, tests negative. Because if you say, say on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week, John tests positive. If you just do the math, that's somewhere around the 14th-ish of the month. Um, mixed double starts on the second, so he'd probably have to get into into China maybe on the, I don't know, 28th, 29th um, of January. That's hardly enough time to quarantine. So uh, it could become a problem, just time, amount of time to get John negative tested and able to get to Beijing to get through the time change and be able to compete at the highest level with Rachel. That sort of makes sense somewhat uh, as to why maybe they haven't announced yet. Yeah, I think that's what's going on too, because they've got the option with this team. With a four-person, of course, they haven't, but they'll hold out to the last minute to make sure that they're going to be negative in the test before they're going to announce them. So if something shows up that they don't like and can't deal with, then they can still make a change. So that would be my thought too. Okay, thank you very much to Sports Interaction for sponsoring what's happening around the curling world. We do it each and every week. And also we have Hot Rock Topics brought to you by Coyote Tractor. They are the proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Uh, once again, keeping with our theme, uh, what's going on? <laughs> Confusion this past week with regard to the provincial territorial playoffs. 
And some people have been asking, Warren, what's the role of Curling Canada in all of this to try and straighten it out? And who's really in charge? Interesting history. And a lot of people have been pointing their finger at Curling Canada, but it really isn't their call. And let's look at some history as to how all this stuff evolved, which is here we are in 2022 and something that was started in 1927 is still sort of the model that we're following. So the Briar was started in 1927 by McDonald Tobacco. It was started by them. It was run by them. There was no Canadian Curling Association, Dominion Curling Association. That didn't come into existence till 1935. So it was the various provinces, in some case cities, that were declaring teams to play in this new found event called the Briar. In 1935, Dominion Curling Association came to existence, which was created by the provincial associations. And this initial role was really in standardizing rules. That was their job. That was what they were put in place for. It was sort of a clearinghouse. The Canadian Curling Association happened in 1967. The name was changed. And through all that period of time, they never really had much to do with the operation of, of the events. Even if I go back and look at times when I was around, um, in the 70s, the Briar, uh, they didn't have anything to do with the women's side of things. That was the old CLCA, but didn't, they didn't come into existence until 1961. But the other events, the mixed was going then, the juniors and the seniors, they all came into existence because there was a sponsor wanting to do them. And the sponsors ran those events. Uh, Curling Canada didn't have very much to do with them at all. And it was kind of a partnership between the provinces and the sponsor that determined these provincial winners. Labatt's came on the scene in 1980, and throughout that period of time, up until 1995, that whole thing continued to run the same. Labatt's owned the provincial championships. They ran them with the provincial associations. And the whole requirement through this thing over time, from a province point of view, territory, and curling Canada, was the province had a responsibility of determining who their representative was going to be, and it was totally up to them. And that continues today. For for that matter, they could appoint a team every year if they chose to, and nobody really has anything to say about that. So we have this rather strange situation. It's now 2022, and again, we're kind of stumbling along with this model that was developed in 1927, where each province can kind of do whatever they like as far as a playoff system they have, how they run the whole thing. And today, Curling Canada really has nothing to say about it except they look to each province and territory to give them a champion for these events, however they determine. So those of you who are blaming Curling Canada for the confusion, it's not their fault, but maybe they need to, along with a lot of other things, address something to bring a lot of this stuff in line that it's 2022. And again, in my opinion, any national championship should be 100% on the direction of Curling Canada from start to finish, because that's their job. The province's job should be looking after the curling clubs, not running championship playoffs for Canadian championships. What, what do you think, Kevin? Are, are you okay with the way it's been done up to now since, as Warren says, since 1927? What, what are your thoughts on the provinces trying to determine a rep for the national finals? It, that's not such a simple question. It seems like a simple question, Jimmy, but um, I, I honestly believe there is. Uh, it's important to have a, an amateur national championship. I think that's really important in our sport. Now, who plays in that? That's up for debate. Um, right now, our sport, there aren't f- fine lines between the top players, the maybe the, let's call them the A players, the B players and the C players. There's just all kind of muddied, muddied together in the same pool. And it just doesn't make any sense to me how, how things are being directed. Um, we need to get somebody in charge 
Well, that's a good statement right there. Who, who in the heck is in charge? Um, but we need somebody in charge to, uh, to, to draw these lines and make them really thick <laughs> and, and make sure that we, you know, get it to get the sport, um, going in one direction. And, uh, if, if a young person wants to become a, a professional or a semi pro in this wonderful sport of ours, great. They have that opportunity. If they want to play in more of the amateur side and, and, you know, like that'd be like a, you know, a zero one, two handicap in golf. Great. There's a place for that person to, to play really, really good curling. Now you're not going to play against Kevin Cooey and Bruce Mowat and Nicodine. That's a different level. You're going to be more against the Ted Appleman's and, and, and that group. Still great curlers, but not the same level as the top curlers. That's okay. And then you've got the club curler. That's kind of where I see we need to make those lines. We need to get this sport directed, uh, so that the young people coming up can choose their path right now there's no path like the paths are just kind of crisscrossed and, and it just doesn't make any sense right now and we just need some good solid direction at the top to make these changes i know it won't be easy uh, how are how are we going to get the provincial associations to give up this power of of uh, of the high performance but but we need to we got to get those guys out of the high performance have curling canada in canada do the high performance so many countries right now uh, their high performance programs are so successful and we really need to do that too uh i guess i, I want to ask both of you what what your guess will be uh i mean when we record this it's january 11th uh, when warren do you think would be the drop dead date that curling canada would say okay there's there's no national championships well it's got to be Pretty soon. I don't, I'm not sure they would say there's no national championships. I think they may be, be forced to diverge things to some degree. I, I would think next week they've got to decide if, if things are going to happen in Thunder Bay or not. Um, I think without question. And, and again, Kevin and I am talking, I think one of the biggest challenges Thunder Bay is probably going to be airlines getting in there because of the things that are going on with COVID. So many flights being canceled because there's no crews. And there's not a lot of flights going into Thunder Bay every day. And certainly the flight, from my experience, from days gone by, that goes from Winnipeg to to Thunder Bay, which is going to be the one for the Western teams, is very uh, small, like one at the most two flights a day. So taking all that into consideration, I, I think there's going to be challenges right there. But it will be interesting to see what's going to happen in the next few days because uh, I would think by the 19th, I would think they've got to say yay or nay. Uh, as far as going ahead or, or not. Let's go to the mailbag. Brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Uh, interesting email from Nick Satterino that says, Hey guys, what are your thoughts on having timing per half game? Hmm. 19 minutes for the first five ends and 19 minutes for the last half instead of the timing per each end. This would take away the ability for teams to bank an enormous amount of time for the 10th end. Uh, Warren? Well, interesting email, Nick. So to some degree, that's more or less what the WCF has suggested, but a little bit of a different twist where they're saying in the first five ends, you're going to get four minutes per end. In the next five ends, you're going to get four minutes and 15 seconds per end. I think what Nick is suggesting is possibly the right formula. I don't think we'll really know exactly how that will work until it's tried and we see what the result is. But I think regardless of where we're going with all this thing regarding timing, I think the key here is moving forward. We have to figure out a way these curling games got to be put into two to two and a half hours uh, maximum. 
Today, we're nowhere near that. And something has to happen to make that happen. If we're going to see this thing develop and grow the way we'd like it to, we see a lot of comments from curlers uh, thinking we need to have more time and the fans like this and the fans like that. What we have to remember is we're trying to sell this whole thing in parts of the world to television and soon streaming that now aren't really in it big time. And uh, we simply are going to have to condense things if we're going to make that happen. Those are my thoughts. Kevin, what do you think? Well, I appreciate uh, Nick sending this uh, email. No, Nick, remember we talked about Nick Saturnino. He's the one that's grown curling so well up in Inuvik. And uh, we talked to Nick in May of 2020 about, uh, talked to him, not live on the podcast, but I had a meeting with Nick to get all the information about why the Inuvik curling program is so successful. Um, so let's talk about, yeah. So Nick, thank you very much. 19 minutes per half. I haven't actually heard anybody bring that up, to be honest. Um, that makes a whole bunch of sense for a few different reasons. Um, and it can be, to Warren's point, if it's going to be 19 minutes or 17, whatever. Um, but to get the game going quicker, but then to some of the curlers who are really worried about the last end or the last two ends having to hurry. Well, maybe this is a really good solution. Maybe it's 17 minutes for the first half of the game and and uh, 19 or 20 minutes in the last half. You could even alter it that way. So good thinking. Um, I, I sure can't argue with Nick on this one. Um, that's a good idea. And I have not heard anybody talk about that before. So thanks a lot, Nick. Yeah, I'll tell you what, to all the guys who talked to about this, uh, one of the points that I really like that a lot of the players make, uh, and you have too, Kevin and Warren, since they put mics on the players, I, I really like hearing them talk strategy, you know, between each ends and taking timeouts. And and one of the problems with having uh, restriction on the time is you're going to miss some of that. And I really like that about curling, uh, getting to hear the team. So just my two cents anyway. And nobody asked for it, Kevin. My, my two cents. <laughs> and we won't again. <laughs> Thank you very much to Nestle Boost uh, for sponsoring that segment. And thanks a lot to all our sponsors. We, we really do appreciate it. Okay, uh, coming up next, uh, why would this be any different? Uh, one of the best curlers in the world is coming on the show, Mark Kennedy. that hear that fellas everybody knows what that means we got a guest knocking at the door uh our guest is brought to you by Goldline curling Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world plus their retail stores in calgary london scarborough and mississauga and they've got two stores in ottawa uh Goldline can be found at every grand slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com this week's guest, of course, is Mark Kennedy, Briar champion, world champion, Olympic gold medalist, and alternate player coming up for Team Gushu at the Olympics in Beijing. Come on in, Mark. How are you doing, brother? Hey, fellas. I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Good to be back. What have you been doing the last little while, spending your time? Uh, I've been uh, hunkering down at home, trying to uh, dodge this invisible minefield that is COVID. So um, it's been pretty quiet here around the Kennedy house. Uh, you're going to go to the Olympics as a fifth. Um, what are the odds, Mark, that you will end up playing a game there? Do, but what have you been told or what do you think your role will be the whole two weeks? My role will definitely be a support role. I think, um, you know, the only way I would step into play is, um, you know, heaven forbid somebody test positive once we get to Beijing. Um, 
you know, kind of on a, on a must need basis. So, you know, hopefully everything goes great and I don't have to play. That would be the best, but, um, you know, I'm definitely there as a safety net in case something is to happen. Um, cause with this, you know, with the spread of this virus, you just don't know who's going to test positive once we get over there. So that's kind of going to be my role, but uh, I'm anticipating just being able to support and match some rocks and help out in any way I can. Uh, well, congrats actually to, to be able to go to the Olympics. Um, Whenever I talk to Kevin about if someone had a choice to play in their national championship or the Olympics, it's hands down uh, going to the Olympics. Kev, over to you. Yeah, Mark, I, I just want to ask you like a, just a normal life question because we, you know, anybody that's traveling right now is going through it on like me on a on a weekly basis. The invisible minefield that you, you just said is so true. I really want to try to figure this out as to how athletes do this. How are you going to stay away from the minefield? Like, like do you stay in the house only or you, do you go to the grocery store? Do you fill the car with fuel? Like how far afield do you go? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, uh, I think it's kind of the number one thing on every Olympian's mind right now. So for us, um, you know, we've been playing, staying pretty close to home. Um, you know, I've gone to a few grocery stores and such, but I think, uh, what Team Gushu is going to do is we're going to head off to Vancouver here on Thursday. Uh, we're going to spend three weeks together in a house, kind of isolating from the rest of the world, just in an effort to try to stay healthy to avoid COVID so we can all get on that plane to Beijing without the virus. So I, I think it's a great plan. And, and I think when we're in that house, it's going to be, you know, ordering food in. We're going to have a curling club where we can practice, but nobody in the club other than us. So really trying to avoid contact and exposure with anybody for that three week period. So we can, um, really do a good job of, of avoiding the virus. And, and I think, you know, the, the biggest reason for doing that is actually to, to allow our families to just get back to a little bit of normalcy. You know, even for myself this week, my girls aren't going to school even though the schools are open for them, you know, just in an effort to avoid me having too much exposure. So it's important for them to get back to normal life, going to school, going to to dance, going to triathlon and same with Brad's girls and same with Mark Nichols's boys. So uh, it's going to be us getting out of our, our wives' hairs for a few weeks and um, and just, you know, hunkering down, isolating and trying to stay healthy. So you're going to Vancouver for a while to practice and quarantine and, and, and that. But then you have to get to Beijing somehow. So the plane, the flight, is at a charter. Again, in 92, we flew commercial. In 02, we took a charter. 2010, commercial. And uh, when I went over to uh, um, Pyeongchang to cover the Olympics, that was commercial. So are you guys going commercial or are you doing a charter? Because it seems to me it would be there a bit of a difference as far as the odds of getting COVID on the way over. Yeah, it's it's a great question. So the situation as it stands right now, there is a chartered flight from uh, from Vancouver to Beijing on the 29th of January. Uh, and that is the flight that the mixed doubles teams will be going on, uh, as well as myself. I'll be heading there early as well to potentially support that mixed doubles team. So I will be on a charter flight. Uh, the guys decided, I believe they decided, I think it's uh, it might not be, it might still be up in the air, but I'm not sure. But they are going to be taking a commercial flight on the 4th of February uh, through Tokyo and then to Beijing. Uh, the biggest reason for that is if, if they were to get on the charter on the 29th of January, they wouldn't see a sheet of ice until February 9th. 
So there's a 10 or 12 day period there where they would have no practice, no on ice access. Uh, and I think they thought it was more important to stay in Vancouver, practice all the way up until the 4th of February, uh, and then just mask up really tight and hope everything goes good on that commercial flight. Uh, but definitely some some big decisions that have had to be made and that, it, that the guys have taken their time with. Well, yeah. So you, and I'll let Warren in here in just one sec, but this is really interesting stuff, opening ceremonies. So then the mixed doubles team, yourself, uh, how about Lisa Weagle? Yeah, so I, I think this is about 95% confirmed that Lisa and I will be heading over with the mixed doubles teams. Uh, I think in time for the opening ceremonies, uh, the, you know, team Gushu won't be there in time for the opening ceremonies, but I don't have a lot of information on what team Jones has decided to do. But yes, we'd be getting there in time for, the, I think for the opening ceremonies and then uh, for the start of the mixed doubles event. Yeah, Mark, I want to ask you uh, kind of a series of questions here. First off, you mentioned you are going to be in Vancouver. The women's team coming as well. Are they going to be here at the same time? I don't think so. I believe Team Jones is uh, going to kind of do their camp um, close to Toronto. I think in the Barrie area is where they're gathering and getting together. But that's all I really know. I, I, I just know that they're not going to be with us in Vancouver. Okay. Another question is something that I have mentioned a number of times. Considering the COVID situation, that uh, Canada will have 12 curlers over there. Um, in the case of uh, the men, there's going to be five on the men's team and two, so there's seven male players. This has never been an issue before the Olympics, but is there any word, are you able to be interchangeable? So you're going over with the mixed doubles team. If something was to happen to one of them, would they allow either you or Lisa to be a substitute? Uh, or when we get to the four-person uh, playing, might the mixed doubles players be able to substitute if, in fact, there was a need? Has that been dis discussed at all? Yeah, so I've, I've had a few discussions, Warren. I can't speak um, perfectly to it, but my understanding is that, uh, you know, for the mixed doubles, let's say, for example, if Lisa and I were to go over there, once we land, if one of the mixed doubles participant was to test positive, we would have about a 24-hour window to change the lineup form. So, you know, let's just say, for example, it's uh, let's just say it's John and Rachel and John was to test positive once we landed in Beijing. Uh, I will be there as well. We could change the lineup for him and, and that way Canada could feel the mixed doubles team. So that's kind of the plan there. And then once the once Team Gushu and Team Jones get there, same situation. If if heaven forbid one or two of them was to test positive, um, we could potentially have that mixed doubles player join the lineup form as well so it's basically a, a creation of two six-person teams and trying to get as many healthy bodies over there as possible i think there is a uh, you know when it comes to the four-person team you do have to declare your five-person lineup for the week i don't think you could carry a six-person team all week long um However, let's say a day before the, the four-person curling starts and two of Team Gushu's athletes are sick, or shouldn't say sick, but positive, you know, potentially that would mean I could fill a role as well as the mixed doubles participant could fill the role for the rest of the tournament. Um, so I know that that kind of decision-making has gone on here in order to just try to have as many healthy bodies as possible. And I think you could, you could argue, you know, that's one of the reasons that, that Brett and Jocelyn weren't chosen to be the mixed doubles team is is it reduces your your healthy bodies by two because you, you're not able to bring two other people over uh, in case they're needed. So I, I hope that made sense. Yeah, no, that's uh, that answers a, a question I've been curious about for quite some time, if in the fact that was going to be uh, some uh, changes that they would make. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that they've done that. 
I guess another question, Beijing, have you been there before? No, I've never been to China. So this is going to be a new experience, although I don't think we're going to get to see very much of it. No, it doesn't sound like it. So the, the other question is, where are you staying? So I know, of course, there's an athlete's village, but um, the wheelchair teams when they were over there, I thought they, they had an interesting thing to say, the fact that uh, they were in a hotel, they were all pretty tightly together, except the China team wasn't with them. But even when they went to the uh, facility, it was almost like in a convoy. So are you going to be staying in the village? Are you in a hotel or do you, do you know exactly what's happening? My understanding is we're just going to be in the village from this from start to finish. Now, I did hear that part of the support team may be staying in a hotel for the first few days until some rooms open up. Um, I think there's three of us, two or three of us that will be coming from the hotel over to the village on the first day of competition. Um, but from my understanding, we're all going to be in the village ward. The one thing I don't know is how far the ice cube is from the village and whether we're going to be bussed in or not. That's uh, just some of the details I haven't looked into yet. Just a couple more quick ones. I'll go back to Kevin. So in the village, are you going to be kind of segregated? There's just the curlers? Uh, or is everybody going to be kind of uh, mingled like they normally would? Or what's going to happen there? Yeah, it, it seems to be some conflicting information, or, or it's, maybe it's just changing all the time. But I'm kind of under the impression that we're going to be pretty segregated the whole time, um, kind of separate from everyone. Uh, and, and just trying to avoid any contact with other athletes. But I don't really have all the answers there, especially when it comes to, you know, and, and Kevin can attest to this, you know, the ability to meet all the other athletes in the in the cafeteria area where everyone kind of gathers and and chit chats. And, and I don't know, I don't think that that's going to happen. But so my biggest question becomes, how do we get our food, whether it's brought to our door or whether we do have some freedom once that bubble gets locked down? Um, I guess we're just going to kind of have to see. And, and I think that's the biggest thing here, Warren, is just the ability to be adaptable and fluid because it, it might be changing every day. Yeah, without question. So one more and then I'll flip it back to Kevin. So we're hearing lots about what happens if you test positive in Beijing. We're hearing you're immediately quarantined for three weeks and uh, <laughs> yeah. in a prison or five weeks. Or do you know what the procedure is if someone does test positive while you're there? Yeah, we, we have been briefed on it. It does sound like you will be moved to uh, what they call a four-star hotel. Um, and, you know, it, it sounds like you should be fairly comfortable. And the procedure would be that you have to test negative 24 hours apart uh, twice. So you'd have a, a negative test and then you'd have to test again 24 hours later. And if that's negative, then you're uh, allowed to be released um, from quarantine, you know, that could take eight days. That could take two weeks. Uh, that could take three weeks. Who knows? Um, but I do know there's another thing that's happening here. Uh, they're starting to look at, uh, a number in a test called a CT score. I'd never really heard about it until last week, but I guess it determines whether you're a, a, a virus shedder, you know, whether you're contagious, the higher your number, I guess the better it is and and the less of the virus you have. So I think they're starting to take those numbers into account when it comes to whether you're, you know, infected or contagious and whether, you know, that number could have an impact as to whether you get on the plane or not. And I don't know, it's a whole lot of scientific terminology that I don't understand, but I just got to try to stay negative as long as possible. Well, let's talk about the team a little bit. Um, like if it was, you know, back in the day when you and I played together and, and we're going to the Olympics, 
um, you know, we, we played the, the slam in early January. That was our first time back on the ice. And then we played a couple weeks before Vancouver, we played a lot of games. Um, Team Gushu, how, when was the last time they were able to play a, a, a significant curling match? Because I think quite a few of the teams you can, uh, um, the European teams have played quite a bit of curling lately. How much curling has has, uh, has the team been able to do, or have you been able to kind of sneak in some games, maybe interclub or intersquad or something? How's that been going? Yeah, I think. You know, having uh, Jeff Walker here in Edmonton, I've had a couple of chances to practice with him. And, you know, their their last competitive game was the trials final with everything that's been canceled. And I think that's going to be the last competitive game they have until the Olympics. So, you know, that time in Vancouver, I think, is going to be absolutely crucial, you know, not only getting some good high intensity practice, but uh, but I've talked to Jeff Thomas as well about trying to get some some games in with the team, even if it's just the team against me and, and Jeff Stoughton and Jeff Thomas, just to try to get the, the game juices flowing a bit. But, uh, you know, that that's definitely going to be an issue once they get there. Um, but but hey, and you know, these guys, too, this is a fantastic team. And I think they're they're going to be prepared for anything. Um, you know, they're, they're going to be able to jump into game form pretty quick and uh yeah they'll be ready and so you know it, it, the COVID is just wreaking havoc for everybody so you're just going to try to do the best you can but I've on, honestly had the impression that if they can get there healthy if they can get to Beijing and 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 no positive tests and feel good and feel refreshed once they step on that ice I don't think it's going to take them long to get into game form um, and then they're going to really be a gold medal contender it's just a matter of getting there in my opinion. You left a really strong lead out of that uh, interclub game in Vancouver. There's you and Jeff Stoughton. That's that's a good top end. Jeff Thomas, oh, but Jules Ochar. You forgot about Coach Oach throwing lead on that team when you guys take on. on and then he can Brad. call the game too, right? <laughs> then he got one of the top top statisticians in the world too. Oh, I forgot about that. I can't believe I left my man off that roster. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and one other thing, one thing that Jules loves to do is play cards. Yeah. And, uh, and in, in Beijing, any idea how many games of crib you may play with Jules over all this time, if it's like basically a quarantine situation. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more about the three weeks in the Vancouver house. I imagine there's going to be some cards being passed around. Kevin, I'm not sure if you've ever told the gang here about Jules in Vancouver when he was quarantined during the Olympics. If you remember that story. I, I remember it. And go ahead, Mark, tell it. It's a great story. And no, I have not talked about it on the podcast. Well, fellas, when we were in Vancouver, uh, we had moved into the village very first when we got there we were in the village and then eventually we moved into a house while we were competing but we wanted to be in the village to meet with all the players and other athletes and well we woke up one day and we didn't have jewels and our uh, our team coach at the time Jim Waite said that they had put jewels in quarantine uh, because he was showing signs of the flu so they put jewels in a room for four days on his own so that he wouldn't make anybody sick so we went about our business for four days and and on the fifth day we saw jewels and he came up to us and he said, hey, guys, look at this. And he pulled out his new camera and he showed us a whole bunch of pictures of him with a bunch of Olympic athletes. He had a picture of him with uh, <laughs> Yarmir Yager and Zdeno Chara, uh, Sidney Crosby. And we said, Jules, what? you were in quarantine. What were you doing? He just said, well, I just snuck out. Nobody was watching my door. I snuck out and came down to the cafeteria and met a whole bunch of athletes and took pictures with them. 
And we just stood there, just just stunned, like, "Oh my God, Jules, you kind of missed the point of quarantine, didn't you?" <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I think it's safe to say that's why you need to move people to this hotel. <laughs> I think Jules is the reason. <laughs> I suggest he doesn't do that in China. <laughs> no, no, we may never see Jules again. <laughs> Mark, for, what do you take away from your, uh, you know, your last experience at the Olympics? Uh, you know, it's such a huge thing. Um, you know, as I said earlier, Kevin's like, if you any way, anyhow that you can get to the Olympics, you're going to do it. What do you remember from the last one uh, when it was all wrapped up and the experience that you did have? Yeah, it's it's what Kevin has always said, even before I had got my chance at the first Olympics. It's just so much fun. You want to get back because of the you're a part of such a bigger team. You get to see other athletes in their prime. Um, you get to go to those events and support them. Now, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get to do that at this one. Um, but it's just a great thing to be a part of, win or lose. And Pyeongchang, I know we finished fourth, but people ask me about the experience as though it was some type of disappointing experience. And, and it wasn't. It was, it was amazing. You know, we, we had a couple of tough games that didn't go our way, but, but that's curling. Um, but to be in that arena and the opportunity to play against those teams at that level with the Maple Leaf on your back and all the other athletes supporting you, it, it honestly is just the best two weeks you could possibly imagine. So, um, you know, for to get the opportunity to go back again, I was, you know, very humbled and honored that they asked me to go. And and uh, it's it's going to be a different experience. Um, there's there's going to be some heavy challenges going in. But, you know, once those games start, uh, and Kevin can attest to this, it's it's just curling. You know, it's still about just making shots and getting comfortable with the ice and and uh, communicating well with your teammates and, and trying to bring out the best of one another um, and trying to play your best. And it's a, an incredible opportunity, an incredible challenge. And, and I'm looking forward to watching these guys go through it and, and supporting them any way I can. What was the pressure like for tickets when you uh, back at, back then, Pyeongchang, to how much of your family could you get there, friends and all that stuff? What, what's allowed? How many tickets are you given or, or do you got to buy a bunch? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say Vancouver was the bigger challenge, obviously, just because it was in Canada. I think we did a good job of getting all our family and friends to Vancouver so they could watch. Uh, Pyeongchang was a little bit of a different story. We had a great fifth at the time. Scott Pfeiffer was kind of in charge of all the friends and families. So I think he ended up booking, you know, tickets and flights and hotel arrangements for 40 people that made their way oh, over wow. to Pyeongchang. Okay. So, so it was great. We had an incredible entourage there as well. Uh, this one, we're not going to have to worry about that. You know, no friends, no family, n- no ticket concerns. So, um, again, this is going to be quite the different experience. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, for me as a fifth, kind of nice to not have to worry about booking tickets for 40 people. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure the guys would have loved for their families to come over and watch. And, you know, it's just another one of those things that COVID took away. And, and, uh, you know, everyone's just going to kind of have to adapt to and, you know, that's the one thing about this team, Gushu, everything they've been through, including missing that, not, a, you know, the, the world championships getting canceled a couple of years ago. They've been through it all, you know, so I, I think they're certainly the right team mentally um, going into this difficult games. You know what, Mark? I agree with you. I think it is the right team for this situation because I think, like you said, Brad Gushu is a special athlete and kind of like a Wayne Madaw that I think that he'll be able to walk out on that ice and be game ready where a lot of people, myself included, I really like to play a lot of games, as you know. And uh, But he doesn't need to do that so much, I, th- I think. And I think you're right. It is the right team to be sending. 
Yeah, that's a, it's a good point, Kevin. And not even Brad. I just, I'd say the whole team. I'd say the whole team is they've been around so long and they've played in so many big games. They've, they've won all the big games and lost all the big games. I, I honestly feel like they can adapt to any situation. And if that means not having played a game in a month and a half, you know, it might take them a couple ends to get going. Uh, but once they do, I agree with you. I, I think they're the right team to, to put in this situation. Mark, we've asked you a lot of questions that are, are you know, under these circumstances with COVID are, are not answerable, but, but you did. Uh, before we let you go, I, I was just thinking when I heard you talk about all this, uh, what happens, Mark, if, if two of you on the team say test in the morning and you're positive and yet you have a game that afternoon or that night? What would be the scenario there? Do you have to forfeit? Do they say, okay, the, the whole team's not allowed to come onto the ice? Do you know? Yeah, really good question, Jim. I don't know. I, I haven't gone down that detailed road, but I'm assuming if you had two positive tests, those two players wouldn't be allowed to play. Um, now, when it comes to close contacts with your other teammates, I'm assuming if they tested negative, they'd still be able to play. Uh, and then you would bring your fifth player in and you'd still be able to play three-handed. But those little fine details, I, I'm not sure. That would be something you'd probably have to ask Jeff Stoughton um, but I really hope that that doesn't start happening where you're forfeiting games like it happened here at the World Juniors for the hockey. I, I think I think it's going to be a pretty safe bubble once you get there. I think once they start having nothing but negative tests entering the bubble and all the athletes get in there, I think it's going to be pretty safe, similar to what the bubble was like last year in Calgary. You know, that that's my assumption. But uh, but yeah, who knows, Jimmy? I, I'm, I guess there's probably lots of scenarios that I haven't thought of that we're just kind of hoping don't happen. Yeah, it's kind of like, let's not go there. Let's see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, let's think optimistically here. Uh, what, one thing is for sure, Mark, you deserve to be there. Uh, congratulations on being picked and congratulations on getting to another Olympics. Uh, really appreciate you coming on uh, today to talk to us about all this. And and best of luck to you, my friend. You, you think you're not going to play a big role, but I bet those guys are going to lean on you quite a bit to help them through it. Way to go. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate that. Hey, did I just avoid the whole show without being asked about mixed doubles or the wild card situation? Wow, what a <laughs> what a bonanza. Thanks, fellas. <laughs> well, yeah. are you in charge of picking the mixed doubles what team? Miracle. Actually, actually, yes, I am. Yeah, I've been pulling the strings from back here all along. But I can't tell you guys yet. I'm going to wait till the very last minute. You listen to the rest of our show. We've already announced it. Yeah, I have, I, I've got a note here, Mark. It's funny you bring that up. I said, okay, we're going to ask Kennedy about the mixed doubles and uh, how he would appoint teams, give them points, pick the team, assign who goes or whatever. And I've slotted in five hours for us to talk about that. <laughs> that's perfect. And, if, and I don't have to answer that question, so that's even better. Yeah, we're, we're going to let you off. The, we threw you under the bus, like I said, with all these COVID questions, uh, trying to get the answers. Uh, we're going to let you off the hook on the other stuff. I Good luck, it. Mark. Take it easy, Thanks, brother. fellas. All the best. Take care. Thanks, Mark. Good luck. Yeah, we'll see you, Mark, when you get back from the Olympics. Look forward to talking to you. Sounds good, guys. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the games. Take care. Okay, Warren, you got lots of work left to do on the show today. Uh, story time brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. 
Uh, okay, Warren, I'm pulling up a rocking chair. Time for story time. Uh, you're going to take us back to 1972 and the famous moment known as the Labonte boot. Uh, but more, uh, talk about how a kicked stationary stone needs to be dealt with. Not the first time we've heard about this. And it was maybe not handled right this past weekend at the Scotties in Alberta. I guess we'll use this as a bit of a teaching moment. We've talked about uh, the Labonte boot many times, but we'll talk about it again. Going back to 1972, the final of the Silver Broom, the World Men's Championship. Manitoba's Oris Milischuk representing Canada is playing Bob Labonte from the USA. Milischuk going into this thing was kind of an interesting character. Um, many people didn't speak highly of him, but uh, you know he was a very successful curler and, and did win a lot in his time. So we're playing the last end. Melschuk is down two with the hammer, so he's got to score a deuce just to force an extra end. And it was a bit of a surprise because he had pretty much marched through the round robin of that competition unscathed to a very large degree. So with his final stone of the 10th end, he's got a hit and he's got a roll because he's playing an intern from the outside in to hit about two-thirds of the rock. He's got a roll. He's got to hit a pretty good chunk of the eight foot to be able to salvage two. So the rock hits, it's rolling, it's rolling, and it's rolling. It looks like it rolls too far, but nobody really knows. Labonte is standing behind the sheet. He sees all this, thinks he has won, and jumps in the air in jubilation. In the meantime, the Melischuk third, Dave Romano, is looking first at the USA stone correctly, and he's just moving to look at the Canadian one when Labonte's jump in the air, hits the ice, he slips, and he kicks the rock. And it looks like he's kicked it farther out, but it's hard to tell. And, of course, that's in the days of no television replays, so that wasn't even available. So in the confusion that took place following this kick, Labonte, whether it's excitement or whatever, didn't say the right things. So they end up measuring this rock that's been kicked. And I guess to Melischuk's favor, they came out and won that measure and, and then won the game in the extra end. For many years, people said Melischuk was a poor sport. He should have conceded the game. He knew very well that they had not scored the two points. But on the other side of the coin, nobody knew. Nobody had looked at those two stones closely. They were very close. And as a result, it wasn't Melischuk's fault. It was Labonte's. And the point being, anytime you touch and move a stationary rock that's in question for any kind of a measure, you automatically just concede those points because there's no way that that rock can be put back to the other team's advantage without that happening. And that's the way it re- reads. If you move a stationary stone, it's to be put back to the advantage of the opposing team, no matter which way you've kicked it or how you've kicked it. So that's the rule that isn't really probably understood a lot. And it comes down to many times curlers being too nice. The team that has... Uh, been the non-offending side in this case, tends to often stand back and say nothing rather than saying, no, that rock would have been there or say, no, you kicked that rock. It no longer counts in what we're doing. And I think at the uh, Alberta final, uh, semifinal, I guess, between Schneidegger and Rock, we saw that type of thing happen. I think it's the seventh end, Schneidegger's hitting and uh, they potentially could score three. And in the process of the rocks making contact and the third player sweeping, she kicks one of the rocks in question. Looks like it's kicked farther out. But again, um, you don't know that for sure exactly how it's been moved. So the confusion that takes place is nobody's kind of sure what to do. Uh, maybe Rock does, but again, they're being nice. They're not going to say anything. And uh, they end up again, they measure this Rock that's been kicked in some direction. And of course, the 
sad thing about this one was uh, in the measure, Schneidegger wins the measure and they count three instead of two. But I think it's a, a word out there to all curlers, particularly younger ones. Whenever you move a stationary stone at the conclusion of an end before the score has been determined, you automatically concede whatever points are involved in that decision to the other team. And there's no question. It, there never should be. And uh, I, I think that's where there's some confusion in this sport. Even the moving stones. If you touch a, a moving stone, and I know that rule at the top level is, is really uh, confusing, you just don't ask. You take it off. And uh, you're you're the one at fault. It has nothing to do with the opposing team. And again, we saw that happen to Holman in the night, in the 2018 Olympics. Similar situation. Bottom line is that the stationary stone is kicked during the process of the end. It's put back definitely in favor of the opposition. If it's kicked at the conclusion of the end and points are involved, you give up whatever points are associated with that kick stone. What if someone kicks a rock warren and it bashes into four other rocks in the house? <laughs> what happens then? That's quite a kick, Jim. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's a good. That's a good boot. Yeah, that's a, he's a he's an all star punter. But what you're saying is possible. I mean, somebody falls. That, that's a very that's a very good possibility. And if you fall, it's the same thing. You're at fault. So, whatever happens there, it must go in the favor of the opposition. No question. There's tough rules in all sports. So. Um, uh, Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs all over the world and inviting you to contact us and ask to set up a Zoom call. We've done several of these with Kevin, uh, Warren, and myself. Uh, please keep in mind it's on a limited basis, uh, but but we love to do it. We've got one coming up uh, this month with a curling club in Texas. Get in touch with us uh, if you're a curling club or a league. Uh, we'd love to uh, have you on as our next Zoom call. Uh, we also like to extend a big thank you to Rod Paulson. I talked to Rod yesterday. He's doing great. And his company, In-House Strategies, uh, for all the great work he's doing with our Facebook and our Facebook group. It's very active and very robust. Lots going on there. A reminder, again, you can send us an email, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. Warren, your new book is ready to go. Sticks and Stones. Tell us about it. Well, it's out there, uh, very timely. It's a story of how curling became a medal sport in the Olympics. Virtually kind of a historic recap of what happened in the curling world between 1972 and 1992. And uh, there's a website, warrenhansenauthor.com. Go there, and it'll tell you how to get a copy. Uh, boys, good. I, I think you settled some of the confusion today. I, I really believe you did. Good, good job, because it is tough to suss all this out. Uh, Kevin, go back to bed. I know I'm going back to bed, Warren, and, and you've got more work to do. <laughs> Take it easy, everybody. Thanks for joining us on Inside Curling. Kevin, we'll see you later. Warren, you take it easy as well. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jimmy.